MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. In the 1970s, British-born comedian Tony Hendra and his fellow editors at the National Lampoon perfected the art of satire. Through comics, illustrations, and irreverent clips, they transformed a small magazine into a powerhouse of hilarious, cutting-edge social commentary. Before that, Hendra had been part of a comedy team with Nick Ullett, performing live across the U.S. But the election of Richard Nixon was a turning point for Hendra and the work he wanted to create. After helping shape the lampoon, Hendra took his fearless wit on the road writing and producing TV shows, acting in movies, and producing albums, one of which propelled John Belushi to fame. Still writing today, he reunited with The Lampoon last year to write a new album titled Are There Any Triggers Here Tonight? For Tony Hendra, the Trump administration has only made his work more relevant. There are times, especially now, when there is an essentiality of satire, and it's important. I mean, even if you don't get rid of the enemy, the enemy triumphs in some curious way. It is kind of civic obligation almost, <laughs> you know, to, to be taking on power, especially when it's already corrupted power in this case. Do you feel during the course of your career that was a part of it, the essentiality of satire? Well, yes. Um, I, 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 obviously, it's self-seeking to, to, to say that. Right. But, I, but I must say, when after the uh, after the election, my my little cast, I have a cast uh, of, of a radio show I do called the Final Edition Radio Hour, and there's a cast in New York and a cast in L.A. 
and everyone obviously was very cast down, as we all were, they were asking questions like that, like, what's the point? You know, we did all this satire all this year and it didn't have any effect on anything. Um, and, um, and, I, and I wrote them a, a sort of letter to sort of cheer up letter. But the core of it was that uh, actually after I got over the shock of, um, of the fact that he'd actually been elected, I found that I had a little buzz, a little buzz, not of excitement exactly, but a buzz as kind of connection, uh, which I was trying to remember when I last felt it. And I remembered that it was actually the same at the same time of day when I heard that Nixon and Agnew had been elected. And they were just as much a horror show for, for the left at that point. And that just as much of a surprise, in fact, even more so because Nixon had been completely written off. And it was that actually at that point, it was like in, in that, that moment in 68 that I actually thought to myself, okay. Where were you in 68? Uh, at 68, I was, I was half of a comedy team. With Nick. With Nick. With Nick <laughs> yeah, exactly. Called Hendra and Ollett. If, if I was giving the interview, if he was giving the interview, it was Ollett and Hendra. But uh, Hendra and Ollett was slightly easier to say. Uh, but um, but we'd, been, we'd been working since 64 when we first came to these shores. And um, we were really at that point in quite successful in, in a kind of official way. We, we were doing the really awful variety shows of, of the 60s, you know, like Hollywood Palace and the Perry Como show right. and, and all that kind of thing. Uh, and um, so, 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 so in terms of comedy then, there were television programs that really were craving acts to come on and there was work to be done for you and all it. Well, there was work, but the strictures on the work uh, were very frustrating because, Why? you know, because we were, well, I mean, certainly for me anyway, because I was, I was very politically sort of anxious and aware, but you couldn't talk on television about any of the stuff that was going on outside the studio doors. I mean, you couldn't talk about the war. You couldn't talk about the various forms of liberation. You couldn't talk about drugs. You couldn't even talk about rock and roll unless you were making fun of it. And so it was very frustrating. But certainly we found that what we were doing, which I would describe as bargain basement beyond the fringe mm-hmm. um, at the time, was not, was, was not something that most uh, American audiences had much interest in, except in New York, where they understood what So was it ambitious casting directors and producers who took a chance? How did you get the jobs on We it? had a very powerful manager called Robert Chartoff. And, um, we the had Bob a, Chartoff. We, yeah, that Bob Chartoff. Right. And we had a, a good friend in Jackie Mason, who was his premier client in in fact, Jackie Mason signed the application for my green card, uh, which is kind of funny. <laughs> Frame <laughs> but, that. Yeah. And anyway, so we've gone through all the, the sort of storm and drang and fire and ice of, of being a comedian in the 60s, like doing the Catskills, for example, which was uh, unbelievable and I could write an entire book about. But, um, but we had emerged from the other end as, as a kind of the English comedy group. You know, there was Italian comedy groups and comedy team and there was an Irish comedy team and lots of Jewish comedy teams. And, and, and it was us. We got that little slot to ourselves. But it didn't make any difference. We couldn't really do anything very, you know, very sort of mm, cutting. Yeah. I mean, I think the most cutting joke we ever did was, uh, was one about um, General de Gaulle being seriously injured this morning uh, during his morning walk. He was hit by a motorboat. 
<laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and that was like, mm, edgy satire. You know? <laughs> Perry Como drawing his finger across his throat <laughs> yeah, right. behind your back. Not again. Yeah, exactly. So it was that kind of thing. And, and above all, the, the, the sort of pinnacle of this dreadful television was, was the Ed Sullivan show. I mean, it was the thing everybody had to get on if they wanted to succeed. Did you get on? Yeah, I, I think it was five or six times. Right. Ed had a very ethnic point of view on comedy. I mean, he had to have, you had to have one of everything. And so, I mean, George Carlin was his favorite Irish comic comedian. Pat Cooper was his favorite Italian comedian, you know, and, and we were his Flip favorite Wilson, British comedian. Yeah. Right. We actually beat out Mr. Pastry. We were more of a, you know, <laughs> more, more popular than Mr. Pastry with, with Ed. But, but, it was, but it was a really difficult show to get laughs on. And, and it was well-known, all comedians. Comedians used to bitterly complain about it being this kind of mausoleum. Uh, and our own private name for the show was uh, Night of the Living Ed. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you think it was that had them call you back again and again? We actually, I guess, got good ratings or something. I mean, or, or it, but, but I mean, obviously, as I said, we, we, were, we were in good shape by virtue of being Ed's favorite British comedians. Right. Um, and then what changed? Well, what changed was, was, was this moment, actually, when, when I mean, at, at that point, I was basically doing the kind of jokes I've been telling you, jokes like about how bad British teeth are, you know. <clears throat> but it was in, really in, in that moment that I was describing earlier when, when I realized that Nixon and Agnew were actually going to be running the country for the next four years. <clears throat> then I decided I've really got to start getting serious about being funny. And it was actually at that point where I, I sort of began to break up the act because I, I really wanted to do, uh, I, I really wanted to do much tougher stuff and, and, and much more. I mean, George had a wonderful, George Carlin had a wonderful uh, comment about that time. He said, you know, uh, when I did shows like that, meaning the Ed Sullivan show, mm -hmm. and he, he did all the same shows we did, mm -hmm. uh, it, it was like being a traitor to my generation. So you shared that view with Carlin? Yes, very much so. I didn't know enough yet about what, was, what I wanted to make fun about. But, but I mean, for example, I had a piece um, which I was trying to sell to Ramparts at, at the time. Remember Ramparts? Yes, sure, an yeah, essay yeah. you wrote. Yeah. And, and it was, uh, it was a, I thought, a very funny piece about Goma Pyle in Vietnam. <laughs> And like, oh, go be some good, Sarge, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and, and that was, and that, as I said, that was the moment where I really began to think, well, I'd much rather be doing this, but I have to find a forum to do it. I have to find somewhere, somehow to do it, I, either by myself. I wasn't going to convince Nick because he really wasn't that political. And, so you um, part ways with him then? Not immediately, but, but, but gradually, you know, I, I sort of, it, we broke up actually in the next year, 69. And was he happy to continue going along and just wanted to work? And Yeah, but that was the point, as I say, really, in which I began to look around for other, other ways. And very soon, the National Lampoon started. You don't start the National Lampoon. No, no, no. I but, was, but those who started it, they find you how? There was a kind of grapevine for alternate comedy. Did the Gomer Pyle piece appear in Ramparts? No, so, it okay. didn't. So I that know, wasn't I a calling card for you in that kind of No, unfortunately. National unfortunately, unfortunately Walter Hinkle, it was a great editor. So who he called you from Lampoon? No sense of humor. Nobody called me from Lampoon. I was told that it was starting up about four or five months before it started up by, by a friend of mine who'd also been part of a comedy team. And, um, but as soon as, I, as soon as I read the first issue, even though it was a very ugly and weird issue, I realized that I had found somewhere that I definitely wanted to write for. And, and sure. I, in fact, started writing for them within the next couple of issues. Yeah. 
So I started, I was first published in them, I think, April, April of 1970. Wow. And I'd been sort of making friends and, and you know, uh, especially in Los Angeles where I was living at the time. And, and, uh, and there was much, a much better kind of underground in San Francisco and Los Angeles for comedy than there was in New York. Uh, so that also helped to sort of mature me in that direction. And for people who don't know, Lampoon was who? So Lampoon was uh, Henry Beard. And, and Doug Kenny. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> and they both were from the Harvard Lampoon. Describe them. Well, D- Doug was a very strange character, very good looking, like a, a real college Joe good looks, you know, blue eyes and, and yeah. shoulder length hair. And, 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 uh, but, but curiously unsure of himself. And he was a terrible editor. He, he would say things like, this sucks, but I don't know why, which is really helpful. <laughs> <laughs> But he, but he was also brilliant. I mean, the, the first time I met Doug, he told me that uh, the British humor wasn't funny. That was like the first thing that kept, yeah. started off the interview. But then somehow it, it, um, it morphed very quickly into him doing a parody um, of, of a novelist called Mrs. Gaskell, who was a 19th century novelist, and, and doing it brilliantly. So it sort of the words just came out of him. And then, you know, 10 seconds later, he was showing me he could put his entire fist into his mouth. (laughs) (laughs) What was his background? He came from Ohio. His dad was a tennis coach. So he wasn't But he'd been a real star. Boston Brahmin. No, not at all. Not at all. And Henry was like the other end of the spectrum. Henry Henry was like... very academic looking with, with sort of enormous amounts of spiky hair and uh, smoked a pipe incessantly, even in bed, it seemed. Uh, and, and just a brilliant intellectual dissector of things. And, and what did and, you start and, writing with them? Um, the first piece that really got me on the map, actually, was a piece called With, with Them. I did it with Henry. Uh, and it was called Nine Days That Shook Wook, Iowa. <laughs> And it was about the assassination or attempted assassination of Spiro Agnew, um, with, with somebody had put an ice pick in his head in Wook, Iowa, during <laughs> campaign stop. And um, the difficulty with it was not whether this was an assassination, but how many people claimed to have been the assassin. I, I, was, I was terrified. I, I thought I was going to be deported immediately. Uh, I wouldn't even put my name on it. I called back then, that was entirely possible. Oh, indeed. You, you want to believe. Ab- yeah. Absolutely. People yeah. keep warning me now that it may be impossible again <laughs> yes, well, if I don't stop with some of my current yeah, behavior. I mean, the, the attorney general then, John Mitchell, was, right. was, was actively talking about suspending the First Amendment uh, because of demonstrations and so on. Mm. So... Um, so that, but that really got me sort of set, and then, and then I, then I, I was sort of in the groove then, because that that was really kind of what I did at the Lampoon. How long did you do that at the Lampoon for, for to when? I was there till seventy eight. So for eight years. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, during that time, obviously, you know, comedy and not not just satire, but comedy in general goes through this tremendous expansion. You know, Saturday Night Live comes on. 1975, and, you know, Lauren is always quick to point out that when Saturday Night Live debuted in 1975, there might have been 14 comedy clubs in the entire country, and now there's 400 comedy clubs in the country. Sure. Um, Back then, from 70 to 78, was there a thought on your part, or did you actually 
go out and write films and TV shows? Do you ever want to become a TV writer or a movie screenplay writer? The, the last thing I wanted to do was go back into television at that point. I must Truly. Say that, that, that was, I, I no matter just, how lucrative it might be. A, a, or, no, absolutely. How did you avoid that trap? The Lampoon took a stance very early on that, that it was kind of an alternative to television. In fact, we never did anything about television. It was very interesting. It didn't occur to us. Uh, it was just like um, it was an alternate reality that w- wasn't our reality. Our reality had much more to do with camp and, and what people were worrying about on campus. Mm-hmm. And I think really it's, it's true to say that for those four to five years, 70 to, to SNL and a little bit, and, and it went on afterwards, but we really, had the, we really had the landscape to ourselves. Is The Lampoon still being published now? No. And it stopped when? It really gave up the ghost in the, at the end of the 90s. Right. And what do you think changed to contribute them? Or just a natural uh, attrition or did, were other things replacing in terms of satire? Yes. Well, there was several issues. One, one was that the, everything has every, – every comedy enterprise has a kind of five-year initial curve. Sure. And um, – which an S- SNL had too. Uh, and, um, and, that, and that was very apparent when – especially in 75 when the founders actually got bought out. So that, that was one, one aspect to it. Then the other – was obviously that once SNL, and SNL basically took our cast. I mean, the cast of a review that we were doing at the time, and put it and made it the SNL cast. I mean, Belushi and and Gilda and um, Bill Murray were all working for the National Lampoon at that point. What were they doing? They were doing the radio show, uh, the, the, the National Lampoon Radio Hour. Radio Hour, yeah. And then um, they also did a review, which is where Lorne saw them, actually. They, they had come from, or they were all Chicago types? Chicago and Canada, yeah. Canada. Not Toronto. Right. So those who were interested in doing television sort of decamped to SNL. And although SNL did have censorship issues, they certainly couldn't do what the Lampoon did on a monthly basis. So I guess— They, they sort of—, they, they sort of Took all the oxygen out of our particular room. So I guess that Beard and and yourself and Kenny, if I follow you, did not have an appetite for working in television. You didn't want to go back to a television show. But other people that worked with you that were performers certainly didn't mind being on television. Oh, exactly. So Lauren just absconds no, no, I mean, with them. Yes, precisely. The magazine began to go into sort of slight decline, but I, I kept it alive for a couple more years. And then the where did you go? Kelly. Um, well, then I, then I quit and um, almost immediately did Not the New York Times. Um, which was this huge parody of the New York Times. And that sort of put me on the map as, as a, a person who could do parodies. I mean, now, did the New York Times respond to you in as Agnew-esque a way as I might imagine? Were they just as brittle? No, actually, um, no, actually, Abe Rosenthal said, we acknowledge that the people who did this parody must love the New York Times, which was shrewd. Shrewd, um, and but what he never said, what he never said was uh, anything about was the fact that it was then like McCarthyite, you know, investigations into the into the Times staff to see who, if any, anybody, had collaborated, right. and um, wow. actually there were a couple of key people who had. So, but anyway, that kind of put me on the map, and I did a lot of parodies after that, and uh, did some projects with Chris Surf, and uh, one of them was a book called "The Eighties Look Back." Uh, which we published on January the 31st, 1979, <laughs> and, um, and was a big bestseller and really was a kind of extension of what The Lampoon used to do, but in a, in a slightly more commercial format. And it was bought by some studio, as a, the movie rights were bought by some studio, and they wanted to make a movie of this book, a uh, sort of futuristic comedy. So that was the first time that movies really appeared on my, on, on my personal horizon. But by then, The Lampoon had already done... Animal House and uh, Caddyshack by then. 
Coming up, Tony Hendra discusses the Benedictine monk who became like a father to him. As Hendra left the Lampoon in the late 1970s to pursue his own projects, another genius of wit, Molly Ringwald, was just getting her start. The definitive it girl of the 1980s, who inspired John Hughes films like Sixteen Candles, Ringwald helped shape a generation. I just trusted him. And, and I've really never felt this since. I mean, John actually had less experience than I had at that point. I mean, Sixteen Candles was his directorial debut. So it was really like we were kids in that way together. And he was really like a, like a confidant. You could say it kind of seems weird, you know. Weird how? Well, I mean, I'm older than than he was when we met. But when I was 36 years old, like, I didn't want to talk to people who were 15. <laughs> like, I didn't. Why do, you, why do you think he did? I don't know. Take a listen to my conversation with Molly Ringwald at heresthething.org. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. After performing on The Ed Sullivan Show, editing The National Lampoon, 
and successfully parodying the most popular newspaper in the world, Tony Hendra could have retired at 37. Instead, the English-born writer, comedian, and actor kept reaching new heights, acting in a Rob Reiner mockumentary, creating a successful British TV series called Spitting Image, and writing a bestseller on a monk who saved his soul. But despite his ability to capture viewers' attention, the 76-year-old was never much of a TV fan himself. I certainly didn't do any appointment viewing. You know, I, I would never stay up to catch a show at a Or you never time. taped, recorded, you never, never followed. There's no television drama no. or comedy that you've... <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> none? No, none. I mean, I, 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 to this day, I don't watch a lot of television. You don't? I mean, it's partly, partly upbringing. We didn't have a television when I was a kid at home, and it was, you know, still very early days in England for television. And... and um, and and but I was just I don't have that ingrained habit of of turning on the television for the news, for example. I, I read a paper, right. and to this day, I mean, I, now I watch a, a lot of Netflix and stuff like that because it's such great stuff. A series, yeah. But I usually. So what's something that you that you like? Mm, what's something you recommend? Okay, uh, I liked very much a show called Catastrophe, uh-huh. which was um, which a the British, couple a British that show. The, you have the baby. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. Very funny and very well written. Um, and I don't know. I can't think of anything. <laughs> it's right, already right, gone out right, of my exactly. mind. Um, but um, but but that's that, the only time I watch television. Really, is 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 late at night when I'm you know having my Insomnia. cheese and cheese and wine or whatever it is. <laughs> and um, but but it's it's just not a habit I've ever had. I must say. Huh. It's, it's, it's very interesting you should say that. Uh, well, I, I used to watch Will and Grace. Um, why? I love Will and Grace. You did? Because, well, because I had, uh, partly because I had ch- two children who watched it. Right. Um, and I must say, you I have how many kids? Very funny. I have three by this marriage. Three. And you have some from previous? Yeah. So you have two, and then three is five. Yes, right. exactly. And, and, and the ones who watch Will and Grace were this current yes. batch yes. are the Will and Grace fans. And their other great show was 30 Rock. They, okay. they well, were just completely addicted good taste. to 30 Rock. They've got very good taste. <laughs> but, um, but, but only because they watched watch these shows, would, you know, did, 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 did I watch them. Up to that point, I can't tell you. I mean, I get my decades mixed up. I, I couldn't tell you if the day after and Roots were in the same decade, which actually <laughs> right, they weren't. Right, right. But, the uh, winds of war. But, but I wouldn't be able to tell you right off the hat, off the back, you know, yeah. any of that stuff. Yeah. Rich uh, man, poor man, yes. and winds of war. Dynast- Which one was Robert Mitchum in? I yeah. remember. Yeah. Yeah, it's all a blur to me now. I mean, Dynasty? I was aware. Yeah, Dynasty. Remember Dynasty? Yeah. I remember I was on Knott's Landing. Really? Which was the more kind of uh, uh, working man's version. There was Falcon Crest and Dynasty right. and Dallas, and those were all the quotidian concerns of right. rich people. Right. And Knott's Landing was, they were more normal people, they were average people. So I was on, I was on uh, Miami Vice a couple of times. Yeah, what did you play? A continuing character. I, I played a wicked recording executive. <laughs> <laughs> Who, who killed? Who killed? Uh, what's his name? What, what's the? What's Don? Uh, jo- Don Johnson. Don Johnson's. What, what's what was his character's name? Sonny Crockett. Yes, and I, I knew nothing at all about the show. I'd never watched Miami Vice, right. and they flew me down to Miami, and I had to do the show, and it was. Uh, was it pleasant? It, it was. It was all right. It was. It was. It was. Did they treat of, you well? They certainly treated me well. Yeah. The Cubans were very friendly. Sure. But um, the uh, the only thing I remember from it is is that I, you know, by then I'd done a few movies, uh, was that Don Johnson obviously captures me. There's a bit of a foot chase. And uh, he knocks me down and the script said, and they roll over and over on the grass. And the, the director said, 
uh, took me aside and said, okay, I know it says you roll over and over, but you, somehow you've got to roll over and over, but never get on top of Don or he'll go crazy. <laughs> <laughs> never make pelvis to pelvis exactly, contact with exactly. Don or he'll go crazy. Or, or pelvis to gluteus. So what happened? Basically what happened was that I had to roll over and then he would chase after me and then I'd roll over some more and he'd chase after me and then he'd roll over and then I would chase after him. But I so never got on top of him. independently rolling down yeah, the hill. yeah. For, for no he particular was reason. You rolling yes. He was rolling after you. I mean, very stupid rock executive, obviously, who didn't just get up and run away. But um, it was very strange. God, I've got to go back and get a copy of that show. <laughs> see that. I want to see just that scene. Yeah. Um, so a career as an actor that was not in the cars either? It wasn't really, I must you say. Didn't care, you, didn't, you weren't seduced by that at all? Uh, no. By the, at that point, I was so taken with the whole idea of being a writer that I, that I just wasn't that interested. That's what you were interested yeah. in. Yeah. Plus, rolling down the hill wasn't yeah, it was you weren't good enough of that. <laughs> enough of that. It's a good story. <laughs> this is but I'd acting. rather write the story than do it again. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now, I want to ask you, when did you write Father Joe? What year did that come out? Uh, 2004. And this is a relationship with a Catholic priest? Uh, no, actually, it's a Benedictine monk. Benedictine monk. I mean, and you Catholic, met him where? Obviously. Well, I met him when I was, um, I was having um, what I thought was a passionate love affair with, um, with another, another man's wife who was How Catholic. How old are you? I'm 14 or 15, right. 14, between 14 and 15, I think. In love with a man's wife, a grown man's wife. Well, I wasn't wife. in love, but I was having, I thought I was in love, but I was having a, an affair with this with this rather sad woman, actually, who was married to a quite tyrannical husband. Who you, was, you were literally having an affair with her? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, actually, well, that's the point. No, we, I, well. it, 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 it was an affair by then prevailing British standards, which meant, um, you know, uh, that I got to first base. Right. But nonetheless, this, this caused, obviously, when, when the husband found out about it, it caused a big kerfuffle in How the family. How did he find out about it? He came upon us, um, he came upon us actually uh, going a little further than first base. And, Doing a jigsaw uh, puzzle. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> whatever, whatever we were calling it. But, but in, any, in any event, it, um, she had her top off. And, um, oh. And they lived in a trailer. And so it wasn't difficult for him to see that that was the case. Um, but he was a very uptight British guy, you know. And he's, and she was he, how old? He was very religious. He was, well, he would have been 26, 27. And she was how old? She said she was 22, but she was probably a few years old. And what do you think it was about you and your 14-year-old iteration that she— I was gorgeous. Yeah, you were gorgeous. Yeah, I was gorgeous. Yeah. Um, and funny. Well, I, I wasn't actually particularly funny, but I think she, I think she, I was a bit poetic in those days. And I, I wrote the opposite of him. Yeah, yeah right, <laughs> right, exactly. And, and yeah, I was very much the opposite. He was a mathematician, uh, physicist, worked on sort of nuclear bombs somewhere uh, over at the Havilland, you know, who, yeah. who knew what he was doing. Um, but he was a passionate convert. And, you know, I'm sure having been brought up a Catholic, converts are more Catholic than the Pope. And he was, uh, he was just fanatic. But he was also giving me religious instruction because I was going to a school that didn't that there was a, a Protestant school, and mixed marriage agreements said that the um, that the child all the children had to be raised Catholics, you know, in other words, given Catholic instruction. So he was giving me religious instruction, and that's how all of this began. Um, and um, when he found out, he insisted that he and I go to a monastery on the Isle of Wight. 
an island off the coast of England where he knew a monk who would take care of this, as he put it. And um, Was it ever articulated what he believed needed to be taken care of? No. He said, he said that a crisis has arisen you know, in our marriage, and, and, and as he put it, we men, it's, it's, we men have an obligation to take care of it. That was the immediate reason for my going in total terror and fear because the whole, whole idea of monks, you know, people in cowls going down dark corridors and flogging people and flogging themselves, just nothing more horrible. And, 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 but when I got there, I found this incredibly wonderful guy, very funny, uh, immensely wise guy who was about mid-40s. And he had a kind of uh, very English. He had a kind of – he had he had an English way of saying V for R, like, you know, transfer. That they, transfer? Uh, transfer. He said transfer things. Prayer. 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 Tony Dead. Prayer. And, and, um, and, and, and he was just, he was just an enchanting character, quite the opposite to what I expected. And he threw, he, he threw this guy out. He, he threw out the husband and said, Tony and I want to talk. You must go. And, and then we had this one. He saw right away that that yeah, was part right, of yeah, right. taking care of this, was yeah. getting back on the boat. <laughs> Done. And so I went to a very odd confession, like, unlike anyone I'd had, had before, where, you know, I knelt beside an armchair and he listened to everything and, and said, you haven't done anything really very serious, except, it, as he put it, he, he said, you've done nothing truly evil, Tony, truly. except committing the sin of s- selfishness. Huh. And that was all he had to say about it. And, and anyway, but that, this, this blossomed very quickly into a, into a, a real friendship that, that uh, I mean, I just adored this guy. He, he, was, he was someone you could turn to with practically any kind of problem and was also very learned in his way, you know, and, and the monastery was gorgeous and the music was, the Gregorian chant was gorgeous. The book came out when? It came out in 2004. So you, so, so you come back to this. Yeah. How many years later? I mean, decades later. Let, literally why? decades. Why? Uh, well, I sort of stayed with you all your life. Yeah, uh, yes, we we maintained a relationship all 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 his life. So you stayed in contact with him. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I never lost touch. Did he remain on the island? I mean, I lost my faith. I went came 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 to America. I became a you know a satirist. I I committed many acts of official blasphemy. Um, You know, and um, and 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 so on. And but I never quite lost touch with Father Joe. And eventually, I mean, I I hit my own personal bottom at a certain point and and came back to him. What was your bottom? Well, my bottom was mostly drugs, mostly cocaine. Me too. Me too. And um, (laughs) and (laughs) we're kindred spirits. Well, you should have met Father Joe. But um, but but he was he was just the same, and 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 he it was it was kind of like the prodigal son, you know, coming home to to, to his father. It was really was that kind of story. Now, um, final edition radio hour, something you're working on now. You still do it? Yeah, oh yeah, sure. How did that start? Leaping lo- long way ahead here, obviously, but but the I had not been doing anything with comedy very much. I was doing a lot of writing. Um, Give me some examples of that period. I used to write for a lot of magazines in the 90s, Harper's, uh, GQ, and Vanity Fair, and I mean, all, all, the, all the sort of obvious magazines. Um, and I would do things like one of the pieces I did with, with, for Harper's was about um, the grandson of Antonio Ordonez, who was a bullfighter. I know you probably hate of this, but, um, but he was a bullfighter of um, uh, extraordinary talent, um, and, and he was only like 18. And I, I covered his first... Um, Temporada, which means season, um, and, and went to all his fights and wrote. wrote uh, I, I found that I 
re- was really writing about Spain and how much I love Spain as I much as Spain. anything. Oh. And uh, and I have to say, George Plimpton said it was the best piece of writing about bullfighting that he'd read since Hemingway. Right, fantastic. So that was great. So it's stuff like that. And that's seductive once you start doing that. And um, when, you know, the, the crash happened and all that happened, it just was so outrageous and so ridiculous that I, you know, my my satire buds began to prick again, and um, I had been writing for the Huff Post. I'd been I'd been writing sort of satirical pieces of, but they were more like commentary than actual satire. Um, so then Murdoch bought the Wall Street Journal uh, in November, I guess, of two thousand. Seven, and he was he announced that he was going to you know change it. So a group of us very quickly got together, led by me, and said we will put out the Wall Street Journal as it will look when Murdoch has screwed it up, right? Um, and turn it into the turn it into the the, the New York Post basically, right. and um, and so we did. We did a parody of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, called My Wall Street Journal with Rupert on the cover going, right. my, my Wall Street Journal, yeah. you know. Um, and um, and it did quite well, actually. And Has the Wall Street Journal gotten closer to what you envisioned it would be under Murdoch's ownership? Well, I mean, certainly graphically, yeah. I mean, we, we you know, we put, we, it was all color and there was much shorter pieces and graphics all over the and place. And has changed under Murdoch. And uh, absolutely. Right. I mean, but what, most importantly, it was a platform for really getting into the financial community and how they had completely uh, looted the country. So it gave, it gave us a platform to do all that stuff. Uh, and all the ads, you know, were, were about Lehman Brothers and, uh, and Bear Stearns and all that. Each one of those was, was a gem of, of one kind or another. But the Bear Stearns ad was a typical sort of kind of ad where all it was just a beautiful woman's ass and Bear Stearns, right? I mean, <laughs> and, uh, and, that, and that's how they thought they would get your sympathy back, you know. By, by putting a beautiful, beautiful woman on there. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Those Australians are so clever. Uh, but anyway, no, no, no. So anyway, that got me started, and, uh, and that very quickly led to doing another parody a couple of years later, which was supposed to be the final edition of the New York Times. This is when the New York Times, like 2010, 2011, everyone thought it was going to go under. Yeah. So we thought, what the hell? We'll do the final edition of the yeah. New York Times. Yeah. And that started the final edition, and we kept that going as a website and then spun off a radio show. And I'm wondering what you uh, – is your final edition radio, are you looking forward to a trove of material to satire with where we're at now? Well, it's, it's interesting you should say that because it's um, – because that really was what I was talking about earlier when we were talking about the buzz that I got, kind of the challenge, a buzz of challenge, if you like, when Nixon and Agnew were elected. Because, you know, a couple less than a couple of years after that, I was with the National Lampoon and a couple of years after that, we, we had the 72 election, right? And but by then, the magazine was really thundering along. I mean, the circulation rising all the time. And we started um, a group called um, – there was a new pack called Satirists for Nixon Agnew. Keep them in office and us in business, you know. And two years after that, he was gone. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't possibly say that that's uh, that that was our doing. Although Carl Bernstein did once say to me that I think half jokingly, but the other half wasn't joking, that if it hadn't been for the National Lampoon, Nixon wouldn't have resigned because we were helping to create an atmosphere where it was impossible possible for him to stay in office. So there is hope, you know, and, and all, all, I must say all my crew were, were very taken with that story of that process, uh, that it is always possible and you've always got to keep trying. Hmm. 
Because if you don't, then it will be absolutely as bad as you think. And it's a great parallel. 68 was a very bad year. Nothing, nothing as bad as that has happened to us. Well, as I, as I struggle to put on that wig every Saturday, I'm going to remember your words. That <laughs> when we stop doing that, yeah. uh, we, we, we allow for something else perhaps. Well, there's many, many lines of force to that. But uh, one, one of them is that the worst thing that happens in situations like that is, is that they turn the tables on you. Um, I did this show in England called Spitting Image, which was a huge, huge success. I only helped create it, but but it was uh, it was a puppet show where, where the puppets were all these incredibly good, grotesque caricatures of public figures, right? And this was in the early eighties or mid eighties. So the most popular of our puppets were Thatcher's cabinet. And at, the, at first, they were furious at the, that we were doing this, totally furious. And then as the show began, began to find its feet and got more and more successful, and these puppets became an institution almost, you know, the, the, the Leon Britton's, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, had this <laughs> sort of puppet. And I'd left the show at that point in the mid to late 80s. But my uh, co-creator told me that he knew that the show had failed, although it was at it highest success, when Leon Britton called up and asked for his puppet <laughs> when it wore out. Yeah. He was going to put it in the corner, yeah. and that would be dinner table conversation. So we have to be careful. I don't mean you have to be careful. But no, I, I mean, do. Being one, I do. One has to be careful about... about about Humanizing the, these people too much. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. indeed. I've had people say I that think that's me. what it is. And it is great that he hates it. Yeah. That's great. I mean, at least you got under his skin. As President Trump gives new urgency to satire, Tony Hendra and the National Lampoon are proof that political parody done right stands the test of time. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots. 
the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.